Good morning, everyone. As we return to our seats, we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew today. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word. Beginning with verse 2 in Matthew chapter 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning. Man, I'm so excited to have the opportunity to be with you today as we close out 2019, as, as Eric said during literature and liturgy, excuse me, and enter into 2019. We've been uh, very blessed the past few weeks as we've been in our Advent series, and today we'd like to continue as we learn about Matthew 2, 2 through 12, as we just heard read from Sandy. Now you may be wondering, from the scripture that Sandy just read, why are we still in the Christmas story? Well, today happens to be Epiphany Day, which is celebrated 12 days after Christmas on the 6th of January, and is the time when Christians remember the wise men, also sometimes called the three kings who visited Jesus. So if you're new here, this is your first time gathering with us, myself, or one of the other leaders here this morning would love to meet you directly after the service. Thank you for being here. It's an encouragement to our hearts to have the opportunity to worship with you. You know, after worship one Sunday, a little boy told the pastor, when I grow up, I'm going to give you some money. Well, thank you, the pastor replied. But why? Because my daddy says, you're one of the poorest preachers we've ever had. You know, (laughs) people give for all different reasons. There are three kinds of giving, grudge giving, duty giving, and thanksgiving. Grudge giving says I have to, and duty giving, giving says I ought to, And thanksgiving says, I want to. 
Now the title of the sermon being preached today is Come Worship the King. As we dig deep and explore the text, we will see that the wise men came to worship the Messiah and did so by bringing gifts. And that we too should view giving not as an I have to or an I ought to, but rather I want to. As we will see that giving is a form of worship. And giving should bring us joy. Forgiving reflects faith in God's provision. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, open our ears, O Lord, to hear your word and your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our wills, that we may serve you today, now and always. Amen. Now you may have heard this story in one form or another. Led by a star, the wise men come to worship the newborn Messiah. And their presence strike concern in Jerusalem and for King Herod as he seeks to find where the newborn Messiah has been born. Now most of us have grown up seeing the major scene, playing with them ourselves as children or seeing them in decorative pieces in our homes. We see the baby Jesus in the manger surrounded by the animals and the three wise men with the shepherds and Joseph and Mary and it's been portrayed in movies and literature and song. If you've ever been over to my house, you've probably stepped on a few of the wise men, along with cars and Legos and so on and so forth. However, contrary to popular belief, the wise men didn't come the moment that Jesus was born. Rather, they came much later. You see, Jesus was probably somewhere between a few months to two years old. And also, we don't know if there were only three wise men. You see, we think there were three because we associate the number three with the three gifts that were presented. The gifts being gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So who were the wise men? Well, the wise men, otherwise known as the magi, stemming from the Greek word magos, were more than our storybooks and nativity scenes has shown us all of our lives. Believe it or not, They were known to some as king appointers or king makers. Now, they were a tremendous political power, and they were extremely influential. What many people don't know is that the Magi were actually a priesthood. Now, not priest in the sense that we think of today, but a priesthood of powerful, influential people who hailed from the Medes group. And out of this group of people, there consisted many tribes, and one of those tribes was the Magi tribe. Now, the Magi were well-versed in astronomy and also astrology. Astronomy is the study of the universe and its contents outside of Earth's atmosphere. So astronomers examined the positions, the motions, and properties of the celestial, celestial objects. And astrology attempts to study how those positions, motions, and properties affect people and the events of earth. So the magi had knowledge of the paranormal and were seen because of this as very wise. They were seen as very wise for this and they gained power in their own right for their paganistic rituals and again for their influence. They were so powerful in fact, okay, that they were seen, the magi were seen as counsel to governments and kings in places such 
as Persia and Babylon. Now, I mentioned that the Magi, a moment ago, appointed kings. This is a big deal. They were so powerful, for example, okay, that a king couldn't sit on the throne in the Persian Empire unless the Magi approved. They didn't only advise as to the, who the kings should be, they actually crowned the kings, they held the coronation. Now, they were the authority of the east. So when we hear in verse 2 that the wise men came from the east, this is what it's being referred to as the magi that appointed and crowned kings from the east. Now, at the time of the birth of Jesus, the eastern empire was actually looking for a new king. You see, the magi had just deposed a king in the eastern empire, so they were looking for a new king to appoint. And at the exact same time, we know that in the west, we had the rule and influence of Rome, which included influence over Israel. So the Romans at this time, the Romans at this time ruled the world. Now keep in mind that at one point in time, the Magi appointed kings of the empires that ruled the world, some of which being the Babylonians and the Persians. So not only were the Magi coming to crown the true king of the Jews, but rather, I'm sure that some of them were thinking about taking back over rule of the world and influence that as well. So why do we say true king of the Jews? Well, I mention this because Herod had named himself as the king of the Jews, although he wasn't a king. He was an Edomite, not a Jew. And the Magi hadn't given him this position. It was the Roman Empire who granted him his power. But he was very influential, as history shows us. Influential indeed. And also, he was not a nice guy. Oh, one last fact about the Magi. They were influenced at one time in history by a pretty important figure. The one and only prophet Daniel. Now why is this important? Well, it's important because Daniel became chief of the Magi. He wasn't part of the Magi, okay? He was chief of the Magi, and then shortly thereafter became prime minister. So think about the implications here just for a moment. The prophet Daniel influencing these prominent influencers with the greatest news that they would ever hear the news of the Messiah that was to come, the one true king. If you'd like to follow along with me in your Bible, we'll go ahead and revisit the story that Sandy read, Matthew 2, 2 through 12, starting in verse 2. So starting in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For when you shall come a ruler... For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Now, the Magi knew of this prophecy, probably in great part because of the influence that they had sitting under the teachings of Daniel. Daniel would have been sure to have had told them the most wonderful and beautiful truth, the coming of Christ, as chief of the Magi. And like any Jew that would have studied the scripture, they would have known of the exact place where the Messiah was to be born, which was to be Bethlehem. So what comes next? Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what the star had appeared, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, remember when I mentioned that Herod was not the nicest guy? Well, he wasn't. And at this stage in his life, he was very power hungry. He had been in power for a very long time, and he had grown paranoid. Okay, he was worried. He was worried that anyone that would even show the slightest inclination of taking his power would actually do so. So history shows us that he typically would rid these individuals, have them killed. Now at this point in his life, he was creeping up in age. And as I mentioned, he was very paranoid. And on multiple occasions, history shows us that he had no problem murdering individuals that could displace him from his power. So when Herod tells the Magi to find the Messiah so that he could worship him, he really wanted him to be found so that he could rid the Messiah from the earth as a possible threat to Herod and his power. And when I say possible threat, clearly, clearly we're putting that mildly. And remember, it's, it, probably wasn't, it probably wasn't just three wise men that approached Herod. Okay, it probably wasn't just three wise men that approached Herod. Rather, it was probably an entire clan of wise men. And the entire clan probably had livestock. And they probably came in the hundreds or maybe even the thousands. So when Herod saw this, already paranoid to those who may overtake his powerful position, this probably added to his extreme paranoia. Picking up in verse 10, when they, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, a clear mention here was they didn't arrive at the manger scene. Okay, rather in a house. Further pointing towards the fact or the thought that Jesus was much older than a newborn babe. And when the Magi came, they came to worship the newborn king. Now, some of the Magi, looking, looking to crown a new king for maybe political reasons, such as to restore dominance back in the east, taking power from Rome, and some of the Magi believing from under the power, excuse me, from under the teaching of Daniel, that this was the one and true Messiah. Who were they worshiping? King Jesus, the Messiah, the same son sent to save the world. We see this in one of the most well-known verses in scripture, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave 
his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This was and is the Messiah's, okay? This was the Messiah, God's son, sent into the world. This was King Jesus. Now, in this moment of utter humility, Jesus humbled himself by becoming 100% man while remaining 100% God, showing us a way to have eternal life so that for those of us who claim King Jesus, trusting in and believing in his life, death, and resurrection, then we will have been given what we don't deserve, namely eternal love and grace and peace and joy, saving faith, eternal life, wisdom, unity, and much, much more. This is the Messiah that the Magi came to worship. In opening their treasures, they, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. One pastor points out that the gold was the gift of a king, and the myrrh was seen to be a gift for a myrtle, uh, mortal man used at burials. Frankincense is for God. For when the frankincense, which is a form of incense, was lit, the smoke could rise to the Lord, and we see this in such places as Exodus 30. Now notice how they worshipped. Okay, notice how they worshipped. They did it by giving. They gave. They showed praise to the Messiah through gifts. They fell to their knees and they worshipped. Gold for a king, myrrh for a man, frankincense for God. See, the Magi usually crowned kings and acknowledged kings. But for Jesus... They fell down and they worshiped him. This isn't just another king. This is the king of kings. You know, we need to be careful that we don't just acknowledge Jesus, but rather that we worship Jesus. You see, they fell down and worshiped a babe. In that moment, they were humbling themselves. And how they do that isn't with words and songs, which are all great. Rather, it was by giving extremely valuable possessions as an act of worship. You see, what they saw in Jesus is that he was the greatest gift that was ever given to the world. And 2 Corinthians 8, 9 states, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I mean, he gave us the greatest gift of all, which was himself, in a true act of love and humility. What gift could be greater? In their giving of their gifts, they're worshiping God, man, king. You know, it's, it's amazing to think, it really is, it's amazing to think that the richest and wisest 
political figures sacrificed their time and treasure to come and worship Jesus. Nothing else in the world grabbed their attention as much as Jesus. And giving of these riches was an act of worship. All of these things were very valuable items. So a challenge for us, okay, a challenge for us is this. Do we give with the same kind of wonder to the work of Jesus in and through his church? You see, the church is called to make disciples and represent the glory of God to the world. So when we give or when we don't give to the work of God through his church, what, what we are displaying is what we worship or value the most. And as we know in Matthew, Matthew says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as we finish a year and begin another year, how might God be asking you to give sacrificially to his work? You know, it comes down to this. We are, we are stewards or managers of his money, and it isn't ours to decide what to do with. Instead, we should ask God what he wants us to do with it. And instead of asking how much should I give, what, what might happen if we ask how much should I hold on to? Okay, so instead of asking how much should I give, what might, what might it look like for us to say, hey God, how much should I hold on to? One pastor writes, that the recent use of money and the things it buys is one of the best indicators of spiritual maturity and godliness is that we exchange such a great part of our lives for it. Because we invest most of our days working in exchange for money, there's a very real sense in which our money represents us. Therefore, how we use it expresses who we are, what our priorities are, and what's in our hearts. If you invited someone to see how you spend your money, what would it say or show about your priorities and what's in your heart? In our time remaining, let me address three points related to giving. Here are the three points I'd like to, I'd like to tackle. One is that giving is an act of worship. Two, Giving should be sacrificial and generous. And three, giving helps real needs of the church. So one, giving is an act of worship. Two, giving should be sacrificial and generous. And three, giving helps real needs of the church. So starting with the first point, you know, just as the Magi brought gifts to worship Jesus, we too need to see how giving is an act of worship. Giving should bring us joy, and as I said a moment ago, that it's a form of worship. How is giving to the Lord a form of worship? Well, the Apostle Paul describes true worship perfectly in Romans 12, when he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable, or well-pleasing and perfect. You know, one pastor sums it up well when he writes this passage. I love this. When he writes one, that this passage contains all of the elements 
of true worship, okay? First, there is the motivation to worship, which is otherwise known as the mercies of God. God's mercies are everything. He has given us that which we don't deserve. That's eternal love and eternal grace and the Holy Spirit and everlasting peace and eternal joy and saving faith and comfort and strength and wisdom and hope and patience and kindness and honor and glory and righteousness and security and eternal life and forgiveness and reconciliation and justification and sanctification, freedom, intercession, and much more. You know, the knowledge and understanding of these incredible gifts should motivate, motivate us to pour forth praise and thanksgiving, or in other words, to worship. So giving is an act of worship. Some of us, though, have a hard time worshiping the Lord through giving because our heart just isn't in it. Because our heart just isn't in it. There's an old saying that our hearts always tend to be where we put God's money. That should be a very, very eye-opening statement for a lot of us. It sure is for me, and it sure was these last 13 days, I can promise you that. The other week, I was given this opportunity to make a purchase on a material item, which was well out of my means. And when I say well out of my means, I mean sleeping on the couch, (laughs) well out of my means. If I'm being honest, I wanted to make this purchase and obtain this this piece of cultural status so bad that I was trying to trick myself into actually making the purchase. And I said, okay, well, what if I tell my wife Rebecca this? I wonder if she would go for this, or maybe I should, I, I should do this. Knowing that I shouldn't and it would have been an unwise purchase, my bride did a great job of pointing me towards Christ. Now, would this piece of cultural status, would it have made me happy in the moment? Maybe for a split second, but then what? You see, these momentary things or items make us happy for a minute. But as we fight towards holiness in his image, when we are in heaven, we will have endless happiness and joy because we will be in his presence forever. Watch what happens, okay? Watch what happens when you reallocate your money from temporal things to eternal things. As we said earlier, for where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. So if we want a heart of God, then give to the things of God. And if you're our hearts, listen, if our hearts are in video games, or if our hearts are in degrees that make us look and feel better, or if they're in cars, or if they're in clothes, or if they're in homes, then that's where our hearts are going to be as well. Point number two. Point number two. When we give, we should be sacrificial and generous. So when we give, we should be sacrificial and generous. Giving 
Giving isn't sacrificial unless it's a sacrifice. Okay, it's not sacrificial unless it's a sacrifice. So what does it look like to give sacrificially? Should we be giving 10% of what we make as a tithe? Well, good question. Tithing was first introduced in the Old Testament. Okay, we see this in Chronicles, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and also in Numbers. It was actually a requirement of the law that the Israelites had to offer up. Okay, hear me when I say that. They had to give a portion of their bounty that they produced. So the crops that they grew and the livestock that they raised. They had to give to the temple or the tabernacle. Now the portion that they had to give was 10%. And I'll be honest with you, every time I hear the phrase 10%, I think how crazy it was that although the Israelites had to offer up 10% of their crops and livestock to the temple, that in reality, because the law required multiple tithes, such as feasts to the poor, to the Levites, to the temple, they're really actually uh, giving higher towards 25%, which is an extremely large number. That is mind-blowing. 25%. 25 percent. So where does that leave us today? Do we have to give 10 percent? Well, the death of Jesus fulfilled the law. Praise God. Praise God. The death of Jesus fulfilled the law. So post his death, we don't see in the New Testament requiring a system where we have to tithe 10 percent. So how much should we give? Well, scripture tells us that each man should give, each man or woman should give what has been decided in his or her heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. For God loves a cheerful giver. And if God loves a cheerful giver, and we know that giving is a form of worship, and it goes directly to moving forward his kingdom, then the question shouldn't be, should I give 10%? The question becomes, what would it look like to get out of my comfort zone and give more than 10%? You see, we should be striving to make 10 we should be striving to make 10% our floor and not our ceiling. Okay, we should be tr- striving to make it our floor and not our ceiling. You know, as followers as Jesus, we should give primarily to and through the local church because it is through the local church that we are called to make most to make much of Christ together. To make much of Christ together through the local church. You know, in the New Testament, it's the local church that is charged to do those things. We see every aspect of our church budget as a means to strengthen disciples and to make new disciples. Like the Magi, through our giving, we show the world the worth of Jesus. Which leads us to point number three. Giving helps real needs of the church. Giving helps real needs of the church. You see, we give through the church in response to real needs. This could be foreign or home missions or world hunger or adoption, widows, orphans, youth groups, staff, and and other ministries. I'm going to get real practical with you here for a moment if you'd let me. Remember, this is, this is just the tip of the iceberg, and we could talk about this for hours. 
And some of you, for some of you, this may be new. For some of you, this may be a reminder. For some of you, you're already doing this and modeling uh, what worshipful generosity looks like. And as one of the pastors here at Sojourn, I thank you. So here it is. When you plan to give, let me challenge you to flip the world's thinking, okay, upside down. So flip the world's thinking upside down. And what do I mean by that? My wife thinks I'm old, you know, I'm outdated when I say this, but so many people put on their dining room table all of their line item expenses. So they take all of their line item expenses, they put it out on the dining room table, and they say to themselves, all right, this is how much money I make. And here are my bills. I need X amount of money for my car payment. I need X amount of money for my student loans. X amount of money for utilities. X amount of money for rent. And once I have paid off my monthly bills, if I have any money left over, maybe I'll give some of it to the local church and then save the rest. Here's your challenge. Before you pay your bills, set aside your 10% or your 12% or whatever you've committed to giving to the Lord through the local church and then pay off your bills. One theologian writes that tithing, okay, that tithing requires humility because it expresses dependency on the sovereignty and faithfulness of God. So by setting aside the first fruits of our finances, we, are, we as Christians are saying, Lord, I give this to you as an act of faith because I know that my provision comes from you alone. Giving reflects faith in God's provision and giving should bring us joy. The proportion of your income that you give back to God is one distinct indication of how much you trust him to provide for your needs. The more we believe God will provide for our needs, the more we are willing to risk giving to him. And the less we trust God, the less we will give to him. Now we're going to be doing a a class here at the church to shepherd everyone on this knowledge. So this sermon, like I said before, literally is just the tip of the iceberg. And I'd welcome all members or not, anyone who, who hears about Sojourn or makes Sojourn their home are welcome to participate once the class is solidified and launched here in the new future. I know our deacon of finance, Ian, is, is uh, working hard on putting that curriculum together. Church, the Magi, okay, the Magi set a good example for us at the very start of Jesus's life by radically giving through worshiping the Lord. The Magi were in awe of who they were coming before and were giving of their riches willingly. Think about how great Jesus is and what he's done for you and what he's doing in this world. Think about how he's changed your life and how he's changed the life of others. Man, we want to be and continue to be a generous church, not because we want you to give more, rather because we want you to, high, to have a high view of Christ. The Magi are showing us that they worship the Lord through giving because of the greatness 
of who Jesus is. As you start the year, as you start the year, ask God to give you an elevated view of Jesus in a greater generosity because, because of who he is and what he has done. How do you think he will respond when you do? As we come to the table, we remember the greatness of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sojourn, communion is for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if this is your first time at church or if you're a regular attender. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, then please join us today in communion. Come and have your faith renewed. Let this expression of obedience and faith be a reminder to us that we need to bow before the Lord. And if you're struggling and you don't want to come up right away and you need to spend some time in your seat praying, praying to the Lord, man, that's awesome and I encourage you to do that. I invite you to sit in your seat and go before the Lord. And if you need someone to pray for you, reach out to your neighbor sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you and ask them for prayer in the moment. Let them know that you may be hurting and specifically what you need prayer for. And if you haven't yet accepted Christ, I want to invite you to take this time to stay in your seat and reflect on the truths of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. That Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all of his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. See, taking communion is a declaration that Jesus is our only hope. And for that, we should rejoice. And we would love to tell you more about Jesus, so let us share the gospel with you as it's been shared with us. Those of you who are taking communion, we have tables in the front, and we also have tables in the back, so whenever you're ready, please come forward. Tear off a piece of bread, grab a cup, then you can return to your seat, eat, and drink. And if you're unable to come up for communion, uh, please let one of us know so that we can bring communion to you. Sojourn, rejoice, for King Jesus has come. Let us pray. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Surgeon, remember that we come not because we ought, but because we may. Not because we are righteous, but because we are penitent. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we are whole, but because we are broken. Come, for the Lord has prepared his table for all 
who love and trust in him alone for their salvation, all, for, all who are truly sorry for their sins and who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior and who desire to live in obedience to him as Lord are now invited to come with gladness to the table of the Lord. Amen.